which is an interesting psalm, uh, a precursor uh, written by David or for, about David or by David, I think. He'll tell you in a little bit what, who it's written by. But uh, um, Psalm 2, the second psalm in the Psalter. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment blessed are all who take refuge in him let the lord bless the reading of his word i uh, wanted to add to um our announcements this morning just to uh, thank um, Arlene Espen and uh, her leadership of the women's ministry. I heard that you guys, you women, uh, had a good time at the uh, Christmas party and uh, that we had a good number show up and it was just a great time of fellowship. Um, I want to encourage you guys that the Lord um, is doing some wonderful things um, through the women's ministry at Christ Central Church. Um, Tuesday night we showed The Preacher's Wife as one of the movies along with Charlie, Charlie Brown Christmas and uh, after watching The Preacher's Wife again with a different eye I quickly realized what an irritant the angel was in the movie Denzel plays an angel and he comes down to this preacher um, who's having problems with his church and his wife and him are not really connecting all that well I realized that his coming was good, but bad news for the resolve and state of the preacher. His relationship with the preacher's wife, though supposed to reach the preacher to help him, makes you and, as we see in the movie, the preacher a little nervous. He is coming to help, but in doing so brings more insecurity and more stress to the already stressed pastor's life to help him. As irritating as the angel may be, he is but a small picture of what Jesus has come to be like. The psalm before you was originally written and applied to the coming of David to his throne as the king of Israel some 3,000 plus years ago. But it has a dual role with the second role being the more important of the two. For this was a psalm that David himself hoped would come true. You see, this psalm prophesies ultimately the coming of God's Son, Jesus Christ. 
So through David, it calls the kings of the world and now you and I to take notice and take our place in line to kiss the son, to kiss the ring, to respect and react rightly to him as God's king. And in Jesus's case, as God, the king. But the psalm says in its very first verse that the nations raged, that they responded with rebellion and disdain to this message of the coming king who would rule. They raged because, you see, the king, then being David, and now we know to ultimately be what we see at Christmas, little baby Jesus, has come to take authority. But but not just his place among the many kings and rulers of the earth, but a new concept to those in the ancient world. And I think almost a new concept to us, even though we have history of it, a new concept to those of us who live in the postmodern world. A king of kings. One ruler over everybody. One right person. Not a democracy, not a vote thing. The man God on earth, not just to be competent among many thinkers and philosophers and scientists, but omni-competent. Not just one way or choice for how we should live life, but he actually claims he comes to replace and eclipse and modify and redeem all other so-called truths and religions and reasons by which we live and operate. And when we are challenged by some, let's just call them a foreign power. When we are challenged through the way we do things, some rebellion and rejection in us is inevitable. For what Jesus coming declares is that in our greatest strengths and the correlating weaknesses, you and I in our world are not good enough, not righteous enough, not smart enough, that we have made incomplete and incompetent decisions for our lives and world according to his judgment. So this baby Jesus comes in this world as a threat to the many and the most of our lives. You see, he's going to grow up to take them all over. This baby Jesus that we see... uh, prophesied in the psalm is magnified from his place among nativity sets and songs like Silent Night where he baby Jesus is sleeping into the greatest threat to human pride and propriety. To say as some to, to say as some have that baby Jesus come to cause a lot of problems is an understatement for the inhabitants of heaven stir and stand and sing and shout At his coming, peace on earth and goodwill to men on whom his favor rests. Now that's a line we see in Christmas cards, but it really means that there will be peace because he will quiet all that opposes him. All in us, all around us. And that this is good news for those who bow their lives to him. It kind of has one of these... Let's kill them all and let God sort them out. Ring to it if we were to interpret it. So the psalm invites us and it it gives us a chance. 
a, a call to kiss the son, to like the wise men. You have the wise men in the Christmas story who are kings of their own country. In the Christmas story, as verse 10 in the psalm says, to be like them, to be wise men. Kiss the son, kiss the ring, kiss the scepter, kiss the one who will and does rule for your own good. For you're not safe where you may stand. Not safe in the strengths that fuel our rebellion and rejection. To be led and overtaken and consumed by Jesus. The kings and rulers of the earth declare their independence and lack of need or want of the coming king. And when the king is the representative, and in Jesus' case, God himself, their rebellion is against their ruler. He's already their ruler and their ruler to be. We see from the scripture that they declare their rebellion in and because of their own straight strengths. We see that they showcase and stand against his rule in their ability to be wise, to outthink the coming threat. Verse 1 says, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? They reason together against God's rule in their lives. We also see that they stand in the strength of community. Verse 2 says, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. That they're joined together in a community of ideas. They have like minds and like passions. And we see that these kings declare that they are not in need of God's king to rule them because they are comfortable and capable under their own rules. I mean, under their own set of laws, their own sense of righteousness, the grip and control that they have over their own and their own lives and the lives of those they're responsible for. They say we have control. We see this in verse 3 where it says, Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. What's going on here is that God's law, his new law brought by this coming king, feels like chains on them, on the rulers that stand against God, because they are rebellious to it. They are lawbreakers to God's new rule and way. They declare that God's new justice, God's sense of righteousness, cannot and will not contain them. It does not compare or control or improve upon their own lives, their own laws, rather. They are declaring, we will not submit our standard of living and worth and freedoms to this coming king. Now, let me level with you so we can kind of understand these kings' feelings toward Jesus's, or in this case, David's coming. He is coming to declare lordship and dominion over things that these kings and rulers have worked hard for. Things that these kings and rulers would die for and have suffered to have and maintain, have had to go to war for, that, that give them and their people and their family a sense of security and identity. And I think for many of us, we too have worked hard to be, be where we are occupationally and financially. We have sacrificed many things to have what we have and have even suffered to bring us where we are. 
We have endured being burned by people over us or, or people that were supposed to care for us. We've been left out to dry and led to believe that if we were not strong, no one else would be for us. And so we've built our personal kingdom, our personal lives on our competencies, built upon our own ability to control our destinies. We may have even at some times in our lives allowed ourselves to be treated like trash to get where we are. And so we refuse to give in anymore to anyone else. We have even been oppressed in the past. And so we must rule. We must be on top of things from here on out. Some of you have had to come across knowing and able to know everything or or else be crushed by the feelings and and perspective of of your parents or seen as maybe not important or maybe you fear being taken over or crushed by someone else. Some have had to be able in caring for yourself. Because no one else did it well for you. Some of us have done great things, gone to great schools, have some competency that has brought you success or some talent, or maybe have some look. Some of you even have these friendships and relationships and associations that that have brought you into a world and feeling of acceptance and status and dignity that you only dreamed of before you had and worked your way into these friendships. I know some of you have had to be righteous on your own. You're fighting to escape a world. Maybe it's your family or maybe it's some close relationships that have in the past been filled with moral failure and heartache and all kind of addictions. And so you've had to set and guard the rules of your morals high so that you can stay on top of things for some of us so we can stay in so that we can be acceptable to ourselves and to others. You've had to defend Yourself and what you have against predators around you. And along comes Jesus and says, let all that down. Lay all that you've worked hard for. Lay down your strengths to me. In other words, give me control over your life. Let me take the wheel of your expensive new ride that you've worked so hard to get. I remember in the preacher's wife, the angel at one point goes out on a date with the preacher's wife. And I don't know about you, but I get kind of nervous. I mean, Denzel looks kind of good. I mean, the preacher's wife's mom even says, woo-woo. Be careful when they come back from the date, she's like, and they're all, you know, acting like two young kids who you know, went on a date, and she says, "Uh uh-oh, we in trouble. (laughs) What is Christ saying? Trust me with something like your wife. Trust me with what is most important to your heart, what you consider most important to your survival. Trust me with that. Let me make you a little nervous as I take control. For most of us, Any authority that calls us to lay our abilities and identities and securities down are a threat, become an enemy to what makes us strong. So unfortunately, stuff like church looks potentially oppressive. So we balk. We rebel 
against committing to being ministered to by the church. Some of us, we come to church, but we have to feel like we have equal authority with the pastors. You know, we want to be friends and chums with the pastor. It's so that when the word is preached, we can kind of choose and pick what we want because there's no real authority that's coming from the preached word. Some of us don't join a church or, or give ourselves to the discipline of church because we really don't want any spiritual authority to infringe upon the decisions we've made. We're protecting our life and our time and our money and decisions from, from God's church and, and, and Christ himself put the church in place to be his authority, his means of grace, his preaching, his oversight by leadership. And we walk around thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me. And I ask you, who is your spiritual authority? We hate it. You don't know how I, how I understand it to be. Yes, some of you have been burned, but some of you don't want any any submission in your life, especially to spiritual authority, because you want to do what you want to do. You don't want authority. It's oppressive. When we look for a community or a way into this company of the church to find in a community or clique that we can be a part of that won't challenge us. You know, we, we want to find the small group that's not going to challenge what we're doing in our lives. We want to try to skip out on God's authority and, and his infringing upon the secret places and decisions of our lives. We look for a God that makes us look and feel okay. We look for a God that makes Jesus and us buddies. We rebel against any right one thing if it's said. Or we try to out-reason or, or no reason or reason out God. Whether we call ourselves Christians or not, I have this idea that we often agnosticize him. We make him there and kind of having to exist, but not called to get in our personal stuff. We say that God has no earthly right authority, much less personal power or concern to get involved with my personal decisions in life. And so we refuse to submit. We refuse to commit our hearts to the body of Christ. And the truth is we are telling God, hey, the so-called king, back off getting so personal. We agnosticize God to control him, to be able to tell him, keep him and back him off where he makes us feel uncomfortable. So we have become strong in hiding the truth or submitting issues to him. We've built a wall of competency to cover being seen as, as not having it all together. And some of us have become such spiritual giants in our own minds. There is no submission possible in our lives. We're a church unto ourselves. We may be, or if I think it's important, what we see coming from the word of God. Some of us even try to atheize him. We say, he can't exist. For I've had to work and work so hard to be and keep in heaven. I've suffered and doing so much without help for some so-called higher power. There is no way this God is going to take credit or control over what I've worked so hard in my own power to attain. 
Some of us like to treat God like real estate. You know, we subdivide him, giving him only the divisions of our lives that will not threaten our control or subdivide our lives and protect where we may have been hurt before. I know when you come hear these sermons or or you read the word of God, you kind of pick and choose what and to what degree we should allow what is said by God to impact us. We, like the nations, see his rule, his law, his sense of righteousness as potentially damaging and hurtful. And so we refuse to be handled by it one way or another. I've got news for you. God's kingdom, his church, is not a democracy. The scripture says it's a monarchy. That the king makes decisions and has the right to come in and rule and take our lives. In verse 5, though, with our strength, the Lord laughs. Verse 5 says, he rebukes them as one enthroned in heaven. Verse 4, and laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He laughs because there is nothing and no one he can't handle or can't see or can't deal with or can't destroy and punish because he is God. He has all dominion and lordship over all in which you have gained strength. He owns it. Don't you know that he created who and what you have that gives you competency and even more than that? Verse 6 says that he sits his king on Zion. Now that tells us that's a, that's a holy mountain. It means that there is no other more righteous and all-seeing place than where his king, Jesus, sits. He laughs because the strengths and values of our lives are a weak place to be in the offers of his lordship. Look at verse 9. It says, when the king comes in power, you will rule them. Talking about the king with an iron scepter, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Not our most favorite picture of Jesus. But let me explain to you. Pottery was used like to hold your water, to to put your valuables in. It represents what holds your worth, what holds your securities, what holds your moral value, what holds your substance. And in the ancient world in which the psalm was written, the hardest thing known was iron. Now get this, your lives, that thing that holds your worth, whether it's your elusiveness or, or, or your ability to stay on top and above, your value and strength is like pottery to iron before God and his kingdom. The nature of his kingdom to ours is like the nature of iron to pottery, that when his kingdom impacts our lives, it will crush and consume the things we hold the strengths. The nature of his kingdom is eternal. Ours, finite. His, perfect. Ours, imperfect. His, revealing and all-knowing. Ours, deceptive and hidden. His is a kingdom of unconditional love and ours, one of performance and conditional acceptance. Ours, evil and fallen. His kingdom, good and righteous. What is he declaring? He is holy and you are not. Remember in Charlie Brown when Lucy... Charlie Brown goes to see Lucy, the psychiatrist. 
And he goes, I just don't know. I don't feel this way. And she says, do you have the fear of this? Then she blurts out some long word. Then you're this. Or if you have the fear of this, then you're this. You know, Charlie Brown leaves thinking, man, I'm pretty bad. Well, you know, sometimes we sit in the, and, and, and realize how holy God is. It's like going to Lucy's booth and the Lord can just read your heart and your lack of so well. It's like the antiques roadshow of your life. And God is from Sotheby's and, and all your friends and life says, you know, your assessment of your life is correct. And God looks at it and says, well, you know, it almost looks like it was real. But if you look at the back really close in the corner on the bottom, I see the sin here. And the sin says that it's fake. It's clay next to iron. It's fool's gold next to real gold. It's a weak place to be and put your life in before God's coming judgment. But we can look with me. Look with me at verse 10 through 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The Lord gives warning to the issues of our lives that flare up in rebellion against him. And then in that rebuke, he actually offers refuge. Get this, in the horror of being destroyed by God's holiness, in contact with our sinfulness, he actually offers hope. He says and calls to us, kiss the son to come to find safety where he stands. What is this call to kiss the sun? It's a call to bow to a new law, to a new Lord, to take your law of competency and complete control and power and prestige or for some of you suffering and give into a new law, the law of love, which starts with an offer of mercy that you and I can kiss God. So that you and I can kiss the power that created the heavens and the earth. He's calling you and I to kiss the power that will transform and redeem this world and you for all time. Now here is the miracle of Christ coming at Christmas. He's coming as a baby. By incarnating in the flesh in our world, what we see is that the baby is not only the feared king of kings, but it's he's kissable, he's touchable. Jesus the king has made himself to be embraced by the likes of you and me. To be embraced by rebellious and fear-driven lives like, like yours and mine, God has offered for your lips to kiss. He has sacrificed for your suffering and loneliness and infragility offered that your sin and issues should be taken by him. Not only that, but that your life be overtaken personally and perfectly by his sacrifice to be your king. You and I are offered in Christ a king that can be touched by our issues. And actually do something about it. And in our kissing him. 
We are called. It was a, in the ancient day, it was a way to show that your nation bows to the other king. Like if a prince was born, like the wise men, you bring a gift and you kiss the little baby. And when you kiss the little baby, you know he's the prince and he's the king. And you go ahead and say, I'm going to trust my nation over to him. I don't want to be crushed. I don't want to be destroyed. Kiss the son. And in our kissing, we are called to freely lay down our weapons which before him are no weapons at all. You know, we're like, we're like a kid, a, a child to him in our greatest strength and show of independence. Like a little kid with a towel around his neck as a cape and has like a twig as a branch or a sword. Lay that down. And like a child, kiss the father by the son. He's calling you and I. To lay down the burden of trying with all that we have to hold it together. You know, there's a strain of self-rule. You have a very fragile kingdom. Think about your marriage. Think about your friendships. You know, I see some of you. I mean, you guys look so together. But man, I'd love to be in some of those conversations in the house. Fragile friendships. Fragile so-called purpose-driven occupation. You're being a parent or wife or single or poor, trying to be rich or sinful and hidden, looking for true freedom. Our fragile kingdom comes not to an end in Christ, but a new beginning. You see, he's not coming to snatch the glory of being created in his image. He's not come to steal away human dignity. He's not come to take your womanhood or your sexuality or your thinking or your creativity or even your competency. He wants to supply it with the redeeming benefits of his rule. Under his rule, he's not promising that there will not be pain in the change, but to make it part of something lasting and eternal and true, more vibrant but less captivating than him. More beautiful, yes, but less attractive than him. Yet making your life more achieving, but less fulfilling than having him. He has come to make your life, yeah, more triumphant, but more broken before him. Look with me at verse 11. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What we see when it says come before him with fear and with trembling, rejoice with trembling, is a picture of worship. Kissing the son is worship. You come. Worship comes from the word worth. Worth it, if we could say it rightly. To come and give him worth And in doing so, gain worth for the life that he is already the sovereign Lord over. How do we kiss the son? Come, submit your heart and lives to his teaching and his means of grace. Come and during the confession, really mean it. Repent. Go to someone. Repent. Say I'm sorry to God and others. Confess your sins in the hope that it's going to get better through him. It means to come with needy and broken hearts to worship on Sunday. To actually be afraid to miss church because of your desperate want and need of him. You know, 
to come before him, it says, with tremblings of rejoicing. That you would be lost if you miss his grace to come trembling with rejoicing that if not in prayer or fellowship or under pastoral care, that you are empty, trembling that your lone ranger heart, your competent minds will no longer lead you, will lead you to hunger rather in spiritual famine. So you are called to say, Lord, let me kiss you over and over again, lest I build a kingdom in opposition to you and lose my way and lose my heart and lose you. What is this rejoicing of trembling? I thought about this. Many of you may have not seen this, but it's the kind of trembling of an alcoholic or drug addict who needs that drug or drink and seize it right there. Some of us, have you been so hungry and you get your food and you just kind of got the shakes? You kind of get your chicken and you just can't get it? You're just so hungry? It's like that drug addict so close to the crack pipe that he believes will make him better. Shaking for it. So close and sure and needy of its power. Not only that, but fear and trembling that he may truly break us for our own good where we have been strong. Fear that he may show weak where we thought we were strong. Fear of a good thing. The fear you get before going into surgery. You know, you may have the best doctor. This is that fear. But before it, we get it twisted into believing that this is a performance thing. You see, kissing the son is about being gained by Christ, about being owned by Jesus. To kiss the son is to be kissed a son, to be kissed a daughter. Look at verse 7 and 8. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The inheritance is given to God's king. We know it to ultimately be Jesus. But David would look at the psalm himself and say, I too need to be kissed a son that I can be a son and thus be an inheritor, an inheritance of the kingdom. That if I kiss God, get this, God has kissed me too. That I am now his to be kept and loved. That once I was a nation unto myself and now I am his property. I am under the banner of his love, under the banner of his grace that I live under the protection of his flag. God calls us to be kissed and find refuge as one who is the very inheritance of the Lord God. The war that many of us are engaged in with the Lord in our wealth, in our accomplishment, in our ability, is one in which we have failed to see that we do and can belong to a God who will love us as a son, as a daughter, as a child whose kingdom and life will never be overlooked or forgotten or forsaken or taken over by unseen powers or better yet, lost by their own failures and sins. You and I are a weak nation deserving To be crushed by God. Deserving to have our lives fall in on itself. Deserving to have it collapse. But if you are a son or daughter, your life with its foolish challenges to God, with its foolish decisions, is secure 
like that child with the cape and the sword who will jump off the porch or, or run into the street feeling they're indestructible. Your father watches over the ones that he has kissed with his grace. Some are strong against his heavenly father because you did not have a father or you may have not known the protecting unconditional love of someone in authority over you. Maybe they were using you. Maybe they were treating you wrong. Always about performance. Always about proving that you deserve to be loved. God says, lay down your weapons. Lay down your defenses because I'm not that kind of father. I am a God who calls you to the security of never being lost, of never being held where your success and safety can go only as far as you can take it or protect it. I am the father who wants to be kissed by kids. Yes, kids with jello and jam on their faces and dirt and mud on their hands. These are the children and the nations they are that I call to be my own. This Christmas, God holds out the mistletoe of his grace. And he calls us to wait no longer. Come under the shade and security of God's mistletoe. Kiss the sun. Be a son. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have looked for other ways to gain security, to gain acceptance, to gain stability. And Lord, in doing so, we war against your offer. Lord, we pray right now, storm our nation, storm our hearts with the truth of your grace. Help us to lay our weapons down. Help us to submit to you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have a king that calls your king to be overtaken. And this king did so by laying down his life. Scripture says that his body was broken and his blood was shed. And in doing so, he triumphed.